All right, mate. Well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Um, if you want to just kick us off, mate, just by giving us uh, a, bit, a bit of information about your background, really, mate, just walk us through your journey um, up until this point. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll go from there. So when I tell you my journey, understand that I've got ADHD. And okay. that's the reason why I've had more transformations in my career than Madonna has had transformations in her face and style. <laughs> it's the easiest way to put it. Um, so my, my journey started, and I won't go too deep into this, but um, so I grew up on, on like the largest council estate in Manchester uh, within Shaw. Um, single mum, domestic violence, background, you know, growing up and everything, which obviously has a as an impact. Um, I was always really, really clever at school. Um, at nine years old, I did a Mensa, I joined Mensa. Um, wow. Yeah, I had an IQ of 131. Um, I'm not sure it's that anymore. I've not had an IQ test recently, but um, <laughs> yeah, obviously a lot, a lot of uh, wear and tear, I'd say, since then. Um, expelled from school at 15 years old. Got my first sales job at 15 uh, for this company in Wivenshaw called Telecom. I think it was Telecom Direct. It's really Do, slick. Do you want me asking why you got expelled? Uh, through acid at a teacher. Right. Okay. Problem child, as you probably gathered. I mean, like I said, I had ADHD, so nobody really knew what ADHD was or talked about it back then. So I was just a problem child. Yeah. Obviously, childhood probably had an impact on that, I think. Um, so, yeah, got expelled, got into my first sales job at 15. Um, was on the verge of getting sacked pretty much every week for about six months. Um, yeah, but I always just held on by the skin of my teeth and managed to pull something out last minute. And then, and then I ended up getting, getting into it after about six months. Um, yeah, and I, I, that was the first of many sales jobs. I ended up being a manager there at 16, which was ridiculous. That's I had crazy. a 44 year old team. And it was just mental, but um, but yeah, loads of sales jobs. But obviously, as I started getting older, you know, when you, I think, I don't know whether this is common for a lot of people, but because of the childhood I had, and this feeling of not being as good as everybody else, because I always felt I was a bit different because of my ADHD, which obviously I didn't realise at the time, but I do now. Mm. Um, I wanted to feel like I belonged. I was more interested in being popular. So obviously with that comes going out and partying, you know, everything that goes along with that. Then my next career, um, I ended up going to prison for a little while. Um, at 23, I think I was. Um, did six months there. Um, and I think, you know, when you have certain moments in your life, that kind of crossroad moments, I call them. Um, I think that was that was it. That was a crossroads moment because I remember, like during the second half of this sentence, I was um, in this place called Kirkham near Preston. It's like an open prison, 
and um, sun was shining. It was a beautiful day. I was outside, just sat against the wall. I was looking, like imagining what all my mates were doing and everything. And um, yeah, it was that moment where I was like, I can't allow, I can't, like I could go down this route or I cannot. So I decided not to, obviously. Got out, of, got out of prison, and then um, started setting up like club nights in Manchester. And I ended up having like uh, this this club night called Digital Orgy, which was um, like one of the most popular nights in Manchester. Five five hundred capacity club, packed out every 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 month when I did my night. Mm. Um, I think part of that though was me kind of again wanting to be popular, you know who's more popular at a nightclub than the guy who puts on the night pretty much. So that yeah, was my true. rationale. At the time. Although, although I didn't realize it, you know, I didn't, I didn't think I was doing it for that reason, but when I look back, like it's obvious to me now, um, you know, everyone used to come back to mine afterwards. We'd party into the weekend pretty much. It was crazy times really. And then, um, and then I kind of felt that I'd run its course and then I was a good singer when I was a kid. You know, I used to do karaoke and win competitions and all that sort of stuff. So then um, I joined I joined a band, um, started writing songs with this band, but it wasn't my band, it was someone else's, and they wrote the songs mostly, and I just did a little bit. So then I wanted to start my own band. It's kind of like my recruitment career, really, worked for somebody else, then started my own recruitment company because I yeah. thought I could do better. Um, so yeah, did this band called Puppet Rebellion, started my own band, uh, was doing gigs across the UK, Manchester a lot, but obviously across the UK as well, um, supporting bigger bands like Feeder, Catfish and the Bottlemen, The really? Twang, Rifles, and we even headlined Club Enemy one night in Camden at Coco, which was amazing um so yeah that was that and then and then and then when that was starting to come to an end I joined well, hang on a minute team. hang on a minute I, I want to talk yeah. about this because um yeah I can't just let you glaze over the fact you're in a band but um but so so you so for you to be like because a couple of bands you mentioned there like Catfish but also Feeder Feeder one of my favorite bands um right how did you because you must have got to a good level to be to get because feeder what, what time scale is this what, what when when you're in this band what what year is it i think it was at the lead mill in sheffield we played with them we were their main support um and that was when it was in the first band uh daystar they were called um but what what time period it was like mid 2000s or it was probably wait so that's 2008 it was probably around 2010 maybe something like okay. that i think i mean it's online i'm sure it's online somewhere there'll be some reviews slating us because we're totally different to feeder because we were like a proper manchester style band and, right um, <clears throat> and, and feeder were obviously feeder so um yeah, I'm sure there'll be a review or two slating us for being like not a feeder band. Um, we were we were okay though. I, I, I think we did well. 
considering considering it was like 2000 i think it was 2000 i can't, I can't remember does it hold a thousand or 2000 lead mill can't remember anyway but it was packed it was so good um and we were on tv as well actually yeah we we're on tv we we're on um espn there was a, a football show called uh, talk of the terrace and we were on there i think two or three times he kept bringing us back the guy who, who was the presenter because he really liked us yeah yeah that's great so you, you you reached a good level then like how how was that like because how long were you so, so just so i can understand like how long you were in this band and 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 your ascent. i think it was in day for about maybe, maybe two years but that was somebody else's band um how it was these two songwriters right and one of which his brother was bonehead out of oasis and um, they obviously wanted to still be. They wanted to still be in a band, but they were too, they were getting too old and they didn't want to do it. So all they wanted to do initially was record music. So I I used, so they advertised or, or I have yeah it was me who advertised because I wanted to do something with singing because I knew that the club night thing was coming to an end and I needed something besides just this constant stream of sales jobs. To, to, to get my teeth into. So I basically put an advert out, a little bit cocky. I'm a really good singer, like, you know, get in touch, blah, blah, blah. I can't remember what the words were, but it attracted them. And um, and then and then they were like, just come down to the stu- home studio we've got. So I went down somewhere in Stockport and I ended up being friends with them at the time. And we just started recording songs and we ended up making an album. And I was like, they didn't have any, apart from writing songs, it, it felt like they didn't really have much of an ambition for it. And the mm. songs were, they were a bit Manchester, a bit like, like soft oasis, you know, and I could understand that because the, I was a bit like that as a singer and they obviously had the influence of Oasis on them all their life because his brother was in Oasis. So I could understand it being like that, but they they didn't really have any ambition for it. And they, they, obviously they didn't want to go out and perform. And I was like, God, I want to go out and do gigs. So I put together the band around me. None of us wrote the songs apart from the odd line here and there. And then we then they started like like getting a guy to put some money in. And then and then we got this PR guy and singing lessons and all this sort of stuff. And then yeah, we started doing gigs and he started getting us gigs on TV and all that sort of stuff. All of us, like, none of us wrote the songs. It was weird as fuck. Did you, <laughs> to be um, honest. Uh, did, did, you, uh, did you ever meet any of the Oasis guys? Performing Monkeys. What? Go on. No, I said, did you ever meet any of the Oasis guys? No, no. I did play, I did play in his uh, Pretty Green stores, though. I played. I did. I did a gig in Manchester, Pretty Green, and then one in London. I can't remember where it was in London, but one of the London ones. Um, that's about as close as I've got. To that's uh, mad though that you were like this. working with Boneheads. I mean, I'm I'm an Oasis, massive Oasis fan. Um, I'm I'm, I'm not. No, sure I, I was. I would assume you are, but I was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I still listen to some Champagne Supernova, Supersonic, all that sort of stuff. But I don't, I mean, yeah, my taste has progressed quite a lot since 
Um, but yeah, I loved Oasis, you know, I did. And I, I probably got a lot of my style from it because Liam Gallagher was just his guy from a council estate like me, cocky, you know, like chest puffed out, didn't give a fuck about anyone. And I, at the time, that was my whole vibe as well. And I, I guess I, I guess I kind of really identified with it. But again, it wasn't a, a conscious thing. I didn't think I'm going to go out and be like Liam Gallagher. I just naturally, what I, I guess a lot of people from Manchester were a bit like that. I mean, you could probably go out to an indie night in Manchester now and see another 15 people who dress like Liam Gallagher, look like Liam Gallagher, act like him, you know. So, yeah, so obviously I was in that band and we we got a load of gigs and that and it was really cool. And uh, And then... <clears throat> But that, but you know, sorry, need to get some water. But if I got, to, you can put it out, can't you? Can I? I'm just gonna wait, get some water. Wait, honestly, yeah, wait. whatever, whatever, it's fine. Just one so yeah so um so but i had i i've always wrote like poems and songs like even before i was in a was in a band when i was like 18 years old this small band called u-turn and we wrote some of the most cringy lyrics about girls from salford and all sorts of stuff and we ended up doing a gig in scotland which was on millennium eve which was really weird um, this guy blagged us to go up there, said he would pay us two grand, and he turned out to be a complete crook. And then, um, so obviously, this place where we were playing, where we were supposed to play, we were supposed to play, but he wasn't going to pay us, and he like disappeared on the night. I don't know why. So everyone in the in the place like put together this big whip round for us, and ended oh, up, really? we ended up earning about we ended up earning about a grand and a half just from everyone putting together putting the hand in the pocket for us. We were like 18 year old kids who had written a few songs and did a lot of covers and that. And it was, yeah, weird anyway. So that's how the band life started. And then I, I just, I'd always wanted to write songs and stuff. And obviously I'd matured as a person a little bit and my view of the world. And I had a lot, a lot of things to say from childhood that I could put into music. So when I was in this Daystar band, they were such nice guys. And the guys that I was in the band with, I, I loved, we were cool. Everyone was cool. I thought, imagine if we just wrote our own songs. Like, I wonder if the guys who were funding it would allow us to put some of our songs in. So we started doing a few, like, live. And they were getting better reactions than the songs that these guys had written. So we were like, oh, maybe we're onto something here. But I, so I basically wanted to set up my own band with the five guys that I was in, the four guys I was in the band with. But it meant starting from scratch with no money behind us, no PR behind us, no nothing. And I was like, yeah, but what's more important, actually doing something that might, makes a difference, like mm. something of your own that you can look back on and be proud of, or doing somebody else's music and letting, and, and then just because there's a bit of money behind it. So I ended up leaving the band and making the big statement, I'm going to set up a band. I'm going to call it Puppet Rebellion because that's what it felt like. We were puppets and this was my rebellion. Not against them because they were nice guys, but they, they wouldn't let us write our own songs. And I think at the time I was like a bit annoyed about it. 
So I set up my band. And I thought these four guys would just come with me because we were all great mates. We 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 drank together. We we watched football together. You know, all sorts of stuff. And they all just stayed. And I was like, so you're all going to stay in this band just because there's money? I'm the fucking, I'm the front man. Like, this is stupid. Like, you, you, you're not going to get a front man as good as me. What are you doing, you idiots? So they ended up staying, realised that I was right. But by that time, there'd been a little bit of argy-bargy between me and them because I was really annoyed about it, thinking they were disloyal. So they ended up setting up this, like, weird psychedelic rock band, which were, were all, they were all right, actually. But And I ended up setting up Puppet Rebellion. I, I basically found a guitarist who's one of my best mates now. He was best man at my wedding. And we set up Puppet Rebellion. I was in that band for like three, four years with him. And we, we did gigs all over the place with them as well. It was it was top. But I wrote all the lyrics. I wrote all the songs. He wrote the guitar parts. And it was like a proper band. You know, not, not, like, a, not like a glorified karaoke. So it's a shame, though. I mean, it was a good time. Mate, it sounds mad. It sounds like kind of mad, like um, uh, like ten years. <laughs> yeah, but then I joined acting at Manchester School of Acting because I thought, well, yeah, the band thing. I, I, I'm I'm not sure whether or what goes down the music. It was the same time actually as being in Puppet Rebellion, but I wasn't sure whether I wanted to do music or acting. And my sister basically went to an, wanted to go to this open audition in Manchester for Manchester School of Acting. Like, and the guy, the guy who runs it was quite well known in, in, in like the soap world, like Hollyoaks and Coronation Street and all of that. So he, he was involved in stuff like that. So I went along with my sister just to like give moral support. And we just had to do this, like, um, I think it was, uh, I can't remember what it's called now. You know, when you you just you're just given a an idea and you you have to basically do it. I can't, there's a word oh, for improv. it. I can't remember it's doing. Yeah, improv. That's it. Yeah, I can't believe I lost that word. Yeah, so I did some improvisation with my sister. My sister didn't end up getting in, um, and I got in, and it was like I, I didn't even want to join. I was just, I was just like going for to show moral support. Ended up getting in. And was there for eighteen months, and that was top as well. I think I think what I learned from it was, you know, in acting, like um, you need to be emotionally available. And there was a lot of stuff that happened in my childhood that I'd never talked about before. And I think it taught me two things. It taught me to so basically one of the things is they teach you about your personality. Everyone's got like these archetypes, like personality traits. And they teach you all about that, and then. All of you are in a circle and you just have to say, you have to be as honest as you can about the worst shit that's ever happened to you. Mm. And for me, having never done therapy, it was therapy. You know, I spoke about the stuff that had happened with me when I was growing up and everybody else spoke about stuff. I was hearing girls talking about how they were raped and all sorts of stuff. So I learned two things, how to be open Number one, um, I, I had a lot of stuff bottled up and that, that, that released that. But also, no matter how bad you think your problems are, there's always somebody with worse problems than you. 
And mm. pretty much everybody's been through some shit. You know, but everybody likes it. So I, I remember I, I, I went through my life kind of thinking, no one's got problems like me. I, I, I've had the hardest childhood. I've had the worst time, you know, and I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it. And I never spoke about it. And it was all bottled up. And then suddenly I'm like, yeah, fucking hell. Everyone's got better, worse problems than me. Like, actually, my life's not that bad, really. You know, in the grand scheme of things, that didn't happen. That didn't happen, you know. So, yeah, and that was, that was it. And then I got into recruitment about nine years ago. Again, another Madonna sort of change. Um, got into recruitment after so many. I was in this sales company, an SEO company in Manchester for seven years. Mm. It's the first job I've ever managed to stay in. Despite having ADHD, I, I managed to stick it out for seven years. Ended up being a manager there, being a team lead, you know, f- for five of the seven years. Broke all the company records. You know, it was it was good. But I think I stayed there a bit too long. But again, everything happens for some reason, doesn't it? So I ended up, yeah, getting a job at Evolution in, in, in Warrington. And, so uh, your um your sales job, yeah. What what do you feel like? Why do you feel like you were so successful? You said you broke all the records, and like, do, do you think you're just naturally good at sales, or did, was that something that you had to, you know, read about, pick back, up, and learn about? When I look back, I don't think I was good at sales at all. I was good at persuading and talking, and I was very one dimensional. I had a script, I'd follow the script, I'd say the right things in the right places, I'd have, I'd have objection handling sheets. And it was it was like so basic when I look back, but it was replicable. And I had a team of six people who basically, I, I didn't manage the way that people should be managed. I didn't give them freedom. I was like, this works. I've proven it works, do this and you'll make money and they did but I, I look back at it now and I, I think wow that was shit I was proper shit I mean it got the results but results are everything are they you know if you're not empowering people if you're not giving people um creativity and every time they make a mistake you, you you're like it's because you're not doing it like I've told you it's mm. yeah it's weird. It's it's like paradoxical, isn't it? Like how 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 I don't believe that that is the right way to manage people, but it was the most successful team that they've ever had. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, it's um, it it's it's a funny one. Like, did you? Because this this was like your first like sales manager role, right? So. Where where did you learn what yeah. you learned? Like, where did you learn how to sell? Where did you get these scripts from? Um, yeah, like I mean, the thing is, in Manchester, in, when I was doing sales, like from from like fifteen years old up till probably like thirty, I think. Um, yeah, probably about thirty. No, about thirty-four. I think I was when I stopped, and. Um, there were so many dodgy sales companies in Manchester, the types of sales companies that you like selling advertising space in a crime prevention magazine that 
that that that never goes to anybody but the people who bought the space you know um it was just like stuff like that really and and these types of sales jobs were pretty much run by crooks but you didn't realize it, it was just another sales job like business rates and all that sort of stuff and yeah i think you go in and then like this is a commission structure you'll earn this for doing this you'll earn that for doing that so then you go in with that mindset and then a month later right commission structure's changing i'm doing this now and i i'm not one for people like moving the goalposts like and I, I need structure in my life I, I didn't realize how much at the time so every time that had happened i'd i'd have an over emotional chimp saying fuck this sir you don't need this walk out so i would and then i'd get another job um yeah so i learned how to really lie on my cv which <laughs> helps me in now being able to spot the bullshit so how how do you spot like liars on like lies on cvs then it's just like asking questions, isn't it? Asking questions about why they left. And you, I don't know whether it's where I grew up, but maybe it's a gut feel. I, I don't believe in gut feelings, first of all. Like people say, oh, I just had a gut feeling. That's bollocks. It's, 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 that gut feeling comes from all the years of experience that you've had. It comes from the lens that you view the world in. Yeah. And that gives you your gut feeling. And and people say, oh, I had a gut feeling. But I had a gut feeling, is what I'm saying, um, based on my experience. Um, so whenever I'm talking to someone and I, I'm hearing the way that they're answering questions, I'm, I just have this feeling that that's bullshit. And it doesn't happen a lot nowadays, thankfully. But when it does... I even say to my clients, like, honestly, I don't trust this one. I know you like him and I know you want to interview them, but I've got there's something telling me that this guy's not right. And yeah. I've been proven right every single time. That's that's really interesting that you're um that based on things that you were doing, which you now obviously wouldn't like, <laughs> but yeah. you're um you're able to to now utilize that to become a better recruiter and I think that's quite common, actually, to be honest, like a lot of recruiters, um, so, some of the best recruiters I've met, they've got like a really good intuition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've got that, I would say. 100%. So what do you want to know now? <laughs> um, sorry, mate. Um Oh, also, by the way, I'll I'll make a note to cut this out. Don't worry. But um, is there a is there a slight little lag on your end? Not really. No, I don't think so. Your picture's yeah. a little bit um, cloudy, but only a bit. Yeah, that's that's all right. It, it sorts itself out because it, like I said, it sort of uploads. Um, yeah. Go let down. me just let me just if I just speak loudly. Checking the echo. There's no echo. Um, cool. So um, I'll just make a note. Cut out. Twenty-seven minutes. Cool. Yeah. Um. So. So yeah. So that brings us up to like. You've been you've been a sales manager and then you've moved into recruitment. So, I suppose my first question um, would be why why did you even get into recruitment in the first place? Like, because most people 
sort of fall into it or so I imagine like I was getting to the point where I realized that the job that I was doing felt a bit one dimensional and I've, I've been in sales for so many years and I felt I don't know how many more jobs I can handle where you just sit you've got a script you follow the script there's no thought and I've got a brain um so I think I just wanted something different and then I went for an interview for some sales company in Old Trafford and I walked in and it was just like every other job but massive and they really wanted to hire me and all that sort of stuff and I just told them no I said I, I don't want to work in an environment like yours I'm sorry it's not your fault obviously you're probably really successful but I think I'm just done with these types of environments and then and then I just saw this I was looking for something different and then I saw this advert for a guy called Tony called a guy called Tony Bolland I spoke to and the interview was like it was it was a, quite a long interview process it was three stages and it was stage two was like for me to do a presentation about like if I was to start a new market what would I do so straight away although it was a, lo a long process I was like well this is actually getting me thinking this is this is what I need um so then I, I did this presentation, I did some research online, found out what recruiters do and how it works and whatnot, and then used my common sense to come up with, like, if it was me, this is what I would do, and then gave them the presentation. And they were like, that's one of the best ones we've had. And I was like, right, okay, cool. So then, yeah, got the job. Guy called Gaz Morris, who's the MD, such an inspiring guy. I was there for two and a half years. I didn't smash it, if I'm honest. Um, I, I had, I think my first year was just like, I was, it was like a half year. I think I did like 50, 60 grand. It wasn't great. My first full year, I did like 137 grand. But for them, the benchmark was two, 200 grand. Like you do 200 grand, you're a good recruiter. Um, and there was only a few people doing over 200. So it wasn't bad. I ended up, what was the like market? Getting on. It was, um, I started out doing um, engineering. So it was like C++, mm. um, embedded electronics, all that sort of stuff. Started off doing that. So the fees weren't amazing, if I'm honest. Um, I think my average fee might have been like five or six grand, nothing great. Mm. Um and it, it was okay. I mean, I learned a bit about recruitment, but I also learned a lot about how not to recruit, you know, mass mailing. There was a lot of things that they did that didn't sit right with me. And I think my moral compass was really coming together at that point. Um, like, I think, I think I'd think i started to realize like there was some things because I'd got away from that cold call sort of hard nosed sales environment. I guess it was then that I started to want to be better as a person. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I was still, I was still very, um, I hadn't been diagnosed with ADHD at the time. Um, I was doing the acting classes. I was friends with a guy from there and he said, you've definitely got ADHD, Si, 100% you've got it. And I was like, I didn't even know what it was. And then, but I didn't do anything about it. And then, I remember at Evolution, like I, 
every time what would happen is every time I'd hear somebody around me talk about something that I could have a conversation about, I would be on it. So someone would say Man United, I'd be like, what? Like a meerkat. My head would be up, what? Man United? And then I'd be sh- my voice is pretty loud, so I'd be shouting across the office. And um, although I was a good biller and the MD thought I could do 200k and he was like, you're a really good recruiter, you just need to harness it. I was distracting everyone around me and um, he had a word for me one day, proper sat me down and he was like, look, you're a really great recruiter, you've got so much potential and I really like you, but you're costing the team with all the distracting and everything. And I really liked recruitment and it was so much more than just a sales job. There were so many different facets to it that I'd not experienced. So I didn't want to lose my job. So I thought, right, this is ADHD. I know it is. And the MD said, no, it's not. It's not. You're just putting a label on it, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I'm going to do something about it. So when I got diagnosed, and then it just flipped for me. It was like that was like another crossroads moment where yeah. ADHD, diagnosis, meds. Suddenly, like, I could focus. I could listen to other people, which I could never do before. And and I just felt like I still had the sort of excitability. I still had the passion. I didn't lose that. But it just rounded off the edges a little bit and made me into a more intelligent and focused person. So then, yeah, I was there for for probably about six months to a year at Evolution on my meds. But I guess because I was a lot more focused, I was a lot more focused on what Evolution were doing wrong as well. And their approach was always about numbers 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 you know and it works doesn't it for the bigger agency it does work kpi this kpi that you've not done enough sales calls you but i've got 15 jobs on why do i need another client yeah yeah but you've got hit that yeah and it was just senseless you know mass mail everybody with the word dot net on the cv well no because i get a thousand responses from people wanting to be taken off the database and I might make one placement from it, but is that one placement worth that bad reputation from those thousand people? So, but they just didn't, it was just the way it was and they didn't understand. So I left there, um, joined this company called, we were a big oil and gas recruiter, had all these ideas, was really focused. And then there was a woman there who, who'd been there like 15 years or something. She was a bully. She she was a top biller for the company. She didn't like me coming in with all these newfangled ideas of recruitment, you know, doing this tech stuff that she didn't understand because she was oil and gas. So she just bullied me. She constantly bullied me, picked on me all the time. And I, I honestly, like, I've never felt so upset because I was like, all I'm trying to do is, is good work, trying to build something special like I've been brought in to do. And you're just picking at every single thing that I'm doing because I'm not you. And What, you what do you mean by bullying? Like, what, what actually happened? Every single call. I'd have a call with a candidate, right? and Or a client, potential client. And everyone else around me were like, oh my God, what a great call that was. 
and she would take me off into the office and she'd be like, you're doing this, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong. Why did you say that? You've given off a good, uh, a bad impression. Um, you know, that's not how it's done at NES, blah, blah, blah. And it happened like nearly every other call. And she'd do it in front of everybody else as well, like really belittle me. And I couldn't handle it. Like I spoke to my manager and everybody was the same. Like they were like, we know, we know it's like that. We know that she's like that, but she's been here 15 years. She's the top biller. So we can't, what do you want us to do? I was like, well, she's bullying somebody. Like regardless of whether I'm a guy, I can look after myself, you know, but I've got respect for women. I'm not going to, I'm not going to start shouting back at her. I'm not going to speak to her like shit in front of everybody because I think that's disrespectful and it's not, not how I want to be, but something needs doing. You can't, you can't have this happening. And mm. um, yeah, they, just, they didn't do anything about it. Nothing. Um, so I ended up leaving there after about four months. I went to, was there for six months. I didn't like their way of working again. It was, it was very much go out and meet lots of different hiring managers. And I was just like, this isn't efficient though. I could probably on the phone speak to 15 hiring managers while you're meeting one or two. And I understand like once you've got, once you, I understand like meeting someone face to face is more powerful than video. Meeting someone on video is more powerful than a phone call. Meeting someone on phone call is more powerful than an email. I understand that and you get more out of it. But at the same time, like, wouldn't it be better for me to at least get some interest first and then go and meet, know that there's someone I want to do business with and go work with them. So yeah. And the CRM was really crap as well. It was this old iTris thing and it was, I, I just, and no one really cared in the office apart from the guy who was running it. It was a small satellite office in Manchester and there was like five people in the office and four of them were just wanting to have a laugh all the time and weren't focused and, I guess it dragged me down a little bit. So then, um, yeah, so then I moved to Portsmouth where my best mate lived and um, joined a company called Met, who had about six people, small, run by two brothers, really nice guys. I told them that I, I'm a good recruiter. I know what needs to be done. I don't need managing. I just need supporting and I need someone to bat ideas off. You know, someone who I can talk to about the way I want to recruit and then you can go oh that makes sense or have you thought about this and to be fair to them they did that they did that and it led to me breaking all their company records um yeah building a really good market building a bank of good clients yeah I think this is a really good like a really important um story to be honest you Simon because your your story is i'm sure there's a lot of people that are listening to this especially like younger recruiters who haven't quite found their home and yeah. i think it's really important because a lot of people and it's one of my biggest issues with the industry but a lot of people they they come into recruitment they'll go into like a bigger company you know, like a corporate company that has blanketed KPIs, which don't make any sense. And they've just got targets for targets sake. Like you said, you know, why am I meeting people with face to face? Oh, because that's for whatever reason, our data shows that we make more placements because you do that. And you're right. Like, you know, 
it, it it's so important that that things make sense but also that you're not stuck in your ways with how you do things just because you've been a top biller for 10 15 years or whatever you know times change yeah. and you know cultures change generations different generations come into the environment and um and technology changes as well and and you don't need to you, well you you need to constantly review i think how you do things on a regular basis yeah. constantly yeah marginal gains so it's how since since mexa since joining mexa late 2017 marginal gains has been the number one thing that i've always came back to how can i be more efficient how can i save time how can i do this how can i do that some marginal gains like an, an, a good a good example of it is i so let's let's say if i build 300k a year and i find a piece of technology that saves me 20 minutes a day so 20 minutes a day that's roughly 87 hours a year saved mm. which is based on the hours that i work right now that's three extra weeks of your time which based on the 300k that's worth 19 grand so marginal gains like save save 10 minutes save 20 minutes every 10 minutes work out what what saving 10 minutes will actually make you based on your averages based on your figures do it yeah um it's uh it, it, i i just think it's so important to for, for the industry to have this i think this this attitude really and this approach um but what what do you think so what's your opinion and view on like how we can fix that problem of you know juniors and trainees and grads coming into the industry going into these types of companies and well just not liking recruitment from the off really because a lot of people get put off from it so i suppose what would be your advice to them and why does it get put off? Like, well, what's the reason why most people get put off recruitment so well i, I speak to a lot of um like juniors and trainees who come in and then drop out after six months. And it's yeah. usually the environment. So the environment's very KPI driven. Um, the training a lot of the time isn't very good. And people are just sort of, they're chucked in at the deep end, not really understanding. Like even, I, I suppose you're, you're a bit different because you obviously had this really good sales uh, background and experience. But what you've got to remember as well is like, some people don't even know like have the like fundamental skills of like working in in an office like organization productivity um for, like forget about selling and recruiting like just you know basic stuff like that so i the, mm -hmm. the the feedback i get when i speak to people is that they're not even getting like basic training and it's it's there's a lot of companies um i don't know if you've seen this but a lot of companies what they'll do is they'll hire like 15 people at a time they expect like mm -hmm eight to quit they expect three to stick it out and then they'll fire like four more um and the problem is this creates like a really bad churn so 
it massively affects the, the industry's reputation, right? And unfortunately, it means that yeah. we lose out on like really good recruiters for the industry. I, th- I think that, first of all, recruitment owners, they've got the gold at the end of the rainbow on their mind. So they come into the business, they're like, one day we'll sell this recruitment company, we'll make a load of money and retire. It's a vessel for them to get where they want to get because they've got all this experience and they want to do something with it. And I think a lot of them grow far too quickly. They Mm. grow far too quickly before they've even realized, before they've, I mean, so part of it's because they set up a business for the wrong reasons. And a lot of people set up businesses because they want to make money and that's fine. But that's not the only reason to set up a business, is it? You know, you set up a business so you've got financial freedom. Yeah, that's a given. Everyone wants that when they set a business up. But that can't be the only reason why you do what you do. So I think a lot of recruitment leaders, they've obviously been big billers. They come in and they just try to, like I did when I was a sales manager, this is what works, keep doing this. But because they've kind of separated from the, the team a little bit because they've grown so quickly, they, they don't, they're not close to the, the market. They don't understand mm. what's really going on for somebody at the, the coal face, you know? So I think, I think that they grow too quickly. They don't, they don't really have, I mean, how many recruitment companies have values on the website that sound great, but then when you actually go into the environment, they ain't living those values. They just do like, like most recruitment companies I find online, you know, what color they use in the branding blue. Why do they use blue? Because it portray, it's, it's a marketing tactic to portray trust. Is that true? Look at us. I, with, I, do you know what? It's, it's yeah. funny you say that. There, there are a lot of companies that use blue. Yeah, of course. Which is why I used yellow and black. The complete opposite. Because that's <laughs> what I wanted to be. In. But yeah, so, so they have all these values on, right? But they're mass mailing candidates left, right and centre. They're using dodgy sales tactics. They're putting out fake CVs into the market to get leads. They're putting fake jobs into the market to get candidates. They're doing all of these different tactics, right? But then one of the values on the website is honesty. Mm. Fuck off. That's (laughs) that's why people are in the industry. So what you're doing is the equivalent of what, like, big startups do when they've got a load of capital funding. They 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 hire a hundred people hoping it's all gonna work out in the end. But these are these are not figures on a spreadsheet. These are real people with real aspirations, yeah. real real dreams, real hopes. And you could kill their career with that move. And these people are irresp recruitment owners, by and large, big recruitment owners are irresponsible dickheads. They bring these people in like a conveyor belt, we'll bring in 15, 
five will work out. Recruitment's not for everybody, let's face it, right? Mm. I would only bring somebody into my business if I was 100% sure that they are the right type of person. They're the right type of person. They've got good values. They've got a good work ethic. Not necessarily working hard either, but working efficiently. Yeah. And and they they have a bigger reason for why they want to do what they want to do. The money. You know, they, they, they want to do something significant in the life because we're all put on this earth. No one, no one. No one, when they're at school, like when when the teacher goes, what do you want to be when you grow older? Um, I want to make lots of money. No one says that. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a fireman. I want to be. I want to. I want to be a whatever. Like because they want to do something that means something. That that's significant. And you're bringing all these people into your business. And if, if if what you're saying, like five people might make it and 10 people won't, well, that's irresponsible. Don't hire the 10. Find ways of being better at interviewing. Find ways of understanding what matters and only look for that because you're just wasting people's time. And if you're not going to give them the support either. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I think that's the issue there, right? The, 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 if the training was better and there was better support and um they were more careful with who they brought into the business because i think a lot of companies what they do is they just sort of like you said they would just sort of hire people who um you know they just want to get into recruitment because they want to make a bit more money and um you know which is fine but you know they they they're not really looking to get into recruitment necessarily and the 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 problem with that though is on the effect of the industry and the reputation of the industry if you've got like five people, uh, 15 people joining, five people stay and 10 leave and never go back into recruitment again, well, they tell all their mates. And then again, we're losing good people yeah. in the industry. Um, and yeah. I, I don't know if you've ever spoken to anyone, but where, where they've gone like, oh, you're a recruiter. Oh, that, uh, sorry to hear that sort of thing. Yeah, I've, I've had that happen. I, 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 I'm proud, so proud to be a recruiter. I'm not proud of the industry. I'm not proud of 90% of people out there who who set up recruitment companies and either purposely aim to deceive and drag the industry down because they just want to make money quickly or the ones that unwittingly do it but just haven't got the capability to run a business and they've done it before they're ready. You know, you hear about people come into recruitment then for four years later, setting up a business. Like, yeah. Like people at 25, 30 years old, they've not even lived life properly yet. Like the brain, the brain, all the brain functions don't, don't really, really uh, set properly until somebody's 30 to 32 years old, I think it is. Yeah. So you've got people at 25 years old who haven't, whose brain hasn't even, even taken its finished form, you know, the functions aren't quite right. And you, and you're setting up a business and bringing in 15 people. Cause you've seen yeah, Wolf I mean, Wall Street. That's how it works. Yeah. I mean, I suppose if say, say someone started in recruitment at like 18, absolutely smashed it. And then, you know, had the money to set up their own business at 24. 
I suppose the I suppose the counter argument would be like, well, what? So should they just like stay employed just to get more experience? No. Or no, but 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 should somebody set up a business who hasn't done the necessary work on themselves to learn how to run a business, to learn how to employ people, to learn how to interview? Now, somebody can do recruitment at 18 for six years, and if, the, if they've got the money and they're ready, great. But why not wait an extra year, go and do a management training course, hopefully you'll learn how to interview, maybe get a promotion where you are, learn how to interview there, actually think about why you want to set a business up and what type of a business you want it to be, and then do it properly. Whether you do it at 26 or 27, it doesn't really matter. But as soon as you set up a business, you've got a responsibility to your clients, to your candidates, who are all looking to you to be the one who knows the right way. Yeah. Um, when you're hiring people, you've got a responsibility. No, every single person you're hiring has got family. Yeah. Some might be supporting the mum who's ill. Some might be supporting children who've had children. You know, like there's a big responsibility to get it right. Don't hire unless you unless you're sure. Be yeah. what's 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 the problem with with only what's the problem with only growing in the first year by five? What's the problem with that? If those five are all really good people, and you've created an environment for them to thrive, but instead yeah. you hire fifteen, you're chasing your tail constantly, chasing your tail. Trying to, trying to, you, 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 like people have not got the time to really, like I, I'm, I'm three years into what shoes now, and I, I'm only just understanding what it's like to really run a business. I, I couldn't way. have hired someone a year ago, or, or, or like now I'm in a position where I feel like I'm starting to get to the point where I might be ready to hire someone. Yeah. Well. You know. On that then, because we've, um, yeah, obviously we've gone off on a bit of a tangent there, but it's uh, it's interesting to see, or interesting to know, like, at what moment then did you realise that you wanted to go self-employed? And I suppose, like, why did you, why did you pull the trigger? Because that's quite a big leap, isn't it? Like, setting up your own business. Yeah. So... Basically, like, I'd, I'd, I'd build, like, I think it was, like, 265 or 270 in my last year. And they'd asked me to be a manager the um, at the beginning of that year. I started it, didn't like it. Um, the guy that I was managing was kind of, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a great leader. That's that's the fact. I, I didn't feel like I was a great, a great leader. And... What he was doing was getting in the way of managing him was getting in the way of me billing. And I realized as soon as I started managing him that actually I'm not really enjoying this. So I went, I asked to move sideways to like principal recruiter and just be a biller. So anyway, so at the end of that year, uh, build what I build, like broke their records, all that sort of stuff. The two guys that run the business, they're really nice guys, but no disrespect, but I'm a better recruiter than them. So I had no one to learn from. 
is number one. I was building more than them. They were running a business, of course, but you can still build and run a business. That's what I'm doing now. So so I don't use that as an excuse anymore. Um, so they were kind of really nice guys. I liked them. I've got nothing against them. But I didn't identify myself with the brand as much. Um, I felt I could do recruitment better on my own. I also realized that out of that 270 grand after tax and everything, I probably only earned about 70, 75. So I looked at that and thought, well, my first thought was money. I realized that like it was money and freedom because I'd asked them to buy a piece of technology, let's say Sourcebreaker, right? 290 quid a month, I think it was. And for six months, I was trying to persuade them to get that piece of software because it saved me 30 minutes every day. I knew it would like they didn't do it. They didn't do it. They undernard six months later. They went, right, we'll do it now. They got it. Everyone was saved, saving loads of time going to individual job boards every day. Um, I saved loads of time and it was frustrating for me because they did it. But I was like, why didn't you just do it sooner? You know, six months of time there that I've, I've lost the. So going back to what we said, like if it's 87 hours, so I've lost 40, 40 odd hours that I could have had. I could have got me an extra 10 grand of billings yeah. if you would have pulled the trigger sooner. And, I'd, and obviously they'll have reasons, business reasons why they didn't want to pull the trigger. And I'm, I'm not privy to that. It's not my business. But because of that, I was kind of like, well, I could do it on my own. Then I don't have to ask anybody permission for anything. I don't have to manage people. I can just be the best possible recruiter I can be and really, really try and offer the best service possible to my clients. Take what I've already done and do it miles better. So that's why I did it. And then it was only when I started doing some training with this guy called Dave Lewis. I don't know if you know him. Um, he's a really good guy. And he was the first person that sat me down and like, figure out your values, figure out why you do this. And at that point, it was just freedom and extra money. But I realized that that was just a side. They, the, the freedom wasn't, but the money was just a, a side benefit to doing a good job. And I, I wasn't really focused on the money. Like if I'm good, I'll earn money anyway. So I'm not focused on that. I was more focused on, I've got an opportunity here to change recruitment. Like, and I know that's a grand thing to say for someone with one year, uh, one, you know, like just setting up his own business and I'm a one person business. But my view was, well, lead by example, change recruitment in whatever way you can, offer the best possible client and candidate experience in any way that you can, come up with different ways to do that that no one else is doing. And you will change recruitment. The more people that find out about the way that you work, the more people that might want to set up their own business and do that because they're sick of being on the hamster wheel of somebody else's, you know, business and not having control. So I'll tell you one, that one, was my, one way that you, was my you way. obviously have, um, sorry, it's, I think there's a little bit of a delay, but um, I, one way, one way um, I would say that you definitely like how have helped the industry already um, which is how I think I came across you actually is your, your job ads on LinkedIn that you write. 
Yeah. And I can't take much credit for it. In what way? Well, I mean, it was Mitch Sullivan's course that, that was the catalyst. I could always write, as in writing songs and stuff. I was always quite creative, but I didn't have the tools to write adverts properly until I did that course. And then I did the course and it unleashed this creativity that I didn't realise quite the extent that I had. And then as soon as I did that, then it was like, well, this doesn't just count this Ada approach and the way to write adverts in a in in a way that attracts the the one person you're trying to attract. Um, that's that's like that's something that can be transferred to all forms of communication. That can be transferred to every post that I write. That can be transferred to every article. That can be transferred to the way that I approach my business development. There's so many ways that that can make a difference. So that so when I did that course, it kind of opened this Pandora's box for me. And, you know, one of the most biggest frustrations I've got, I mean, I had a guy on LinkedIn we were talking to the other day, and, uh, you know, he seems a nice guy, and I've spoke to him a few times, so I'm not going to say anything bad about him. But, you know, I feel that there's a real arrogance about job boards that recruiters have. It's almost like a badge of honour. Oh, I don't touch job boards. I only look for high net worth individuals who who wouldn't be on job boards, right? So I had a £150,000 offer, salary offer for a candidate two, three weeks ago, right? How did I find him? Job board. Job board. Wrote an advert. He wasn't looking actively. But he he was browsing, just browsing to see what else was out there. Something had happened in his day and he was pissed off. And he thought, I'll just have a browse. You know, like you do, emotional people do. So you have a browse, you see an advert that catches your eye and he, he applied. But I, he, I think that speaks for the power of your, your job ads as well, right? Because I, I know you're saying that, you you know, you learned about it um, through Mitch Sullivan's course. And, you know, Mitch is very well known. But yeah you've still got to go do it and you've still got to like take that knowledge and, and, and execute it. But what's your creative process behind creating a, uh, like a good advert for a, a job then? I mean, it's simple, isn't it? Like headline, grab attention. Um, once you've grabbed their attention, make sure the next paragraph is exciting enough to grab more attention. And I don't talk about the company I don't talk about the company and what they're all about. I don't say, oh, my client is this, the biggest this, or they've won this award, or they've got the best workplace award. None of that sort of stuff is important. What's important is you've got John, who's a software developer at his company, right? And his problem is that his company um, isn't listening to his ideas about moving to a different technology that will help them become more efficient, right? Similar to how I was at Mexa. So he's sat there and he's he's looking at job boards and he's frustrated. My advert speaks to his problem. My advert will say something along the lines of, you are the type of person who never wants to stand still. You want to learn 
every technology that you possibly can because you know as a developer your 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 development is never done i'm, I'm making this up but that's the type of thing right mm. he then reads that and he goes he's talking to me me alone that's me but then this, the next line will be about something else about learning and uh, maybe about about uh work-life balance and there'll be a person sat there who's like my company's asked me to go back into the office three days a week i don't want to do that oh this advert's come across and the work-life balance oh my god that sounds like he's talking to me so what i do is i do my headline and then i've got three or four hooks that are going to hook the main reasons why people want to leave their job and I can only do that if my client gives me that information and if I qualify them well and I drag that out of them that they can actually have that so the hooks aren't always going to be the same I won't put anything in my adverts that's not true so you know sometimes it won't appeal to everybody and that's fine but I've always got three or four hooks that are going to grab attention for what most software developers want and mm. and then the rest of it's just like yeah it's, it's you know how do i how do i apply you know and that's it now i'm not saying i understand with job boards so, so advert in a nutshell right it's you can't write a good advert if you've not got the content the only way you're going to get the content is having a good enough relationship with the client that, that you've got and asking very good questions that are designed to bring out the stuff that you know software developers really want. So understand your market, ask good questions, speak to your client, have a relationship with them where they'll give you whatever you need to go out to the market. Once you've got that, write your hook, write your, your headline, write your hook, You've you, you three or four hooks, a little bit of blurb about the company, and the also what I do is I don't I don't put more than three or four things that are required skills. I don't even put desirables in there because I think it's just a big shopping list. Developers by nature, you know, I, I'm generalising, but I'm sure most would agree, tend to have some form of 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 neurodiversity a lot. Um like me, um, they tend to be anxious people by nature uh, a lot of the time. And when you may be so used to being so engrossed in the code and maybe not quite as much on the social side, maybe maybe you lack a little bit of confidence sometimes. And I've seen it over the years. And again, I'm generalizing and there's a lot not like this, but you know, I come across a lot that are. So you imagine you've got 10 different 10 different things on a list of what you need, especially female developers. Honestly, like I've had female developers tell me this, right? But you've got 10 things on the list and you've got eight of them. Oh, I'm not applying. I've not got the two. I've not got that and that, so it'll be a no. Because it's binary, isn't it? Have you got it? Is it yes or is it no? Is it zero or is it one? You know, it's, yeah. It's, so so I only put three or four things on there, right? And I always use natural language like like just like you were talking to your mate. I try to imagine the person that I'm talking to and try to just talk to them. Who is my yeah. target? What will they be doing right now? What what are their feelings, you know? 
why why are they unhappy how can i speak to them as a person in written word and that's it it's not that difficult how long do the uh, the ads take you to make typically if i'm doing one with a brand new client i've never worked with i can spend two two and a half hours because i want to get it wow. right but then once i've got a client that i'm working with regularly and i know them the adverts tend to be the same with differences depending on the role. You know, the hooks are always the same. Um, well, not all of them, but some of them are the same. Um, headlines, I, I always do different variations of them to keep them slightly fresh, but you can't, you can't completely reinvent the wheel every time you work on a role for a client. Um, so those ones might take 30 to 45 minutes. Now, that's interesting. Have you, um, so, so, before you started doing this then yeah when you really like what were you doing before like were you just doing what everyone every other recruiter does is no, like you know i mean i always tried to do better than that i didn't write everything from scratch because i didn't know how to but i would take what I've, what the information that i had and try to put it in a better way but there were lots of mistakes i was making so like i was making the similar mistakes as everybody else you know our client is the market leading black all the all these weasel words that we don't want so you know like when i had the mitch sullivan course it was like everything that i felt everything that i felt should be the right you know like you have this feeling like this doesn't feel like the right way to write adverts mm. gut feeling perspective whatever it is right it doesn't feel right it doesn't feel attractive enough and what Mitch Sullivan's course taught me was a structure. And people with ADHD love structure. It's how I live my life now. Everything's structured. I've got lists and plans for everything. I've even got a structure for this podcast. You know, that's how I live my life. It's, it's how I function. So as soon as I had that workable structure to work to, it was like, right, so... It's like, it's almost like when your missus said, says to you, oh, I want you to be more spontaneous. I have to plan to be spontaneous. She never knows that. She just sees me being spontaneous. But in my head, I plan that. And it, yeah, adverts, it's just, it's just planned. Once you get what a plan. if you don't have structure then? Like, how does that affect your... Sends me out over the place if i'm honest so like I, I try to control my day um and occasionally it does but like an, an example i've got a dentist appointment or an orthodontist appointment at 10 o'clock in the morning i get to the office at 11. it's very very hard for me to stick to a day plan on that day because i've already lost three hours so my head goes a little bit and it'll probably it's probably the type of day where I'm more likely to finish a bit earlier and lose motivation because I know that I've not stuck to my plan and it's something I'm working through I'm trying to get past I'm speaking to a performance coach at the minute called uh, Chris Christian Hoyle but if you've heard of him um and I've had two sessions with sessions with him and I've already improved massively on areas um but yeah, so that's that's kind of how I how I, how it affects me, even with medication. 
it's difficult. But mm. I'm a lot better than I was. And I still, Setting up I your still... own business then, like moving, yeah, like moving in, into sort of managing yourself, obviously from, from being employed and obviously having ADHD as well. How have you found that transition, like in terms of productivity, in terms of discipline, in terms of motivation? Yeah, I mean, there's been some challenges. ADHD has cost me probably about 100 grand just while setting up odd shoes. And I'll explain why. So, I, you know, when you've got, when I've got an idea in my head, like um, setting up a business, I just want to do it immediately. Like impulse. My emotional brain is talking. There's no thinking things through. Once I've made that decision in my head, I've got to do it. I've got to do it then. Because it's only affecting me, so I can take that risk. You know, obviously, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd be a bit more reserved if I was hiring people, which I'm not. But so, so basically, I, I took the decision to, to start the business. So they're a company, and basically they invest in recruitment businesses. They've got two okay. models. They can take a portion of your business and invest money in it up front, um, but they own a piece of your business. And or they can take a piece of your billings, a percentage of your billings, and they provide all of the, 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 the tech that you need to set up. So when I started, I set up with them because... I only had about 12 grand. Obviously, that's not enough for everything that you need. Mm. Now, if I didn't have ADHD, I would have probably got some more money behind me, worked on it a bit more, or found another way, or got a loan, or whatever, whatever I have to do, and I would have thought it through, but I didn't. So I didn't let them have a piece of my business. Um, because I had the 12 grand, I didn't feel like I needed it, um, which I'm so happy I did. Um, but I did agree to a four-year contract with them where they take a percentage of my billings and they provide all of, all of the, the website and the, the CRM system and Sourcebreaker and all the stuff I asked for, basically, LinkedIn recruiter and stuff. But I ended up like in year one, I think I paid them like 15 or 20 grand. And then in year two, I was halfway through year two. And like, yeah, once once you've done six months of running your own business and understanding the equip the tech that you're working with, you realize how much you don't need somebody like to provide your stuff and how they're really ripping you off. Mm. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Some of them are good. There's a guy called Max, and he set up a company like this, and he seems like, you know, one of the good ones. But we're just a shark. They came in, and within a year, the support disappeared. Like, there's a guy who who, who works for them, uh, IT guy, and he said he would set up a trademark for me. A year later, he'd still not done it. And I asked countless right. times. So stuff like that, you know, and I had this account manager called, I think he was called Kevin, really nice guy. But he he hadn't worked as a recruiter like I work. So he didn't understand the way that my 
my work. He, he wasn't he wasn't able to deliver a lot for me personally, but he was such a good guy. And and he left, and I got another guy who didn't understand. They they didn't they didn't you know they didn't give me anything that could help me really become a better recruiter or be a better business owner. And that's what was part of the package. So about a year and a half in, I had to borrow, I, I, I said to them, look, like you've got two choices, give me a figure so I can buy myself out. Or because I'd moved to France, I didn't really care, you know, cause obviously I've got the French business as well for tax purposes. So I could have just shifted everything onto the French business and I couldn't, I wouldn't have had to have stuck to the contract. Now I had no intention of doing that, of course, because that's not how I am as a person, but I gave the impression that that was an option. So they would let me out the contract. And so, and it ended up, I worked out, right. Cause I knew that I was going to build like 250, 300 that year. And I, I'd said to them that I would do about 200. So I worked out in my head, oh my God, if I, if I, if I build what I think I'm going to build over the next three years, they're going to make like 150 grand out of me besides what they've already made. So I need to do something about it. So anyway, I ended up getting a figure of like 55 grand and I'm a year and a half in, I didn't have that money in my business. So I had to borrow that money from a friend paid it back within the same, by, by December, paid it back, bought myself out the contract. But that's an example of how ADHD and the, the emotional brain can go into something and take the easy route rather than the difficult route. And that was one of the biggest mistakes I've made in my life, let alone in recruitment. Yeah. And, uh, so if there was another recruiter out there thinking of setting up a business, please find, come and talk to me. I'll help you decide what equipment you need and how to do it. And don't take investment. Don't, don't let someone like rip you off. Mm. Yeah. How, so, so setting up your business, yeah. How did you find setting up? Not only obviously you're setting up a brand new desk, but you're setting up a brand new desk with a brand new brand as well, right? In a brand new country. In a brand new country. So how did you yeah. find that? Like so, what challenges did you go through from a business development perspective? It was, I mean, luckily I had an agreement with my ex-employer that I would take some of my clients with me because they didn't want to work with anyone but me, which is good. Um, and they were That's nice amazing. enough to let me do that. Yeah. They were nice enough to let me do that because they recognized what I'd brought to the business. And it was more than just being a recruiter who build. I was their main recruiter and I built their reputation because of social media and clients and all that sort of stuff. I brought on a lot of clients for them. So I just had that conversation with them. They were cool about it. Everything. They were really nice about it, actually. So we agreed that there was, I think, three of my clients I could take. And they would take some of the other ones that I was less bothered about, but they could make money from. So that was cool. That really helped. And I didn't realize how much it had helped until a month after starting the business, they announced that the first COVID lockdown was going to happen. So you imagine like 
shit, what am I going to do? Mm. My client's going to stop hiring. This is going to get really bad. Plus, my now wife, um, we were a year into our relationship. And we were seeing that she lives in France. I live in England. She's got two daughters. She was coming over every three weeks. I was coming over there every three weeks. But we knew eventually one of us were going to have to make a leap. And we were planning for it to be the end of 2020. So when the first lockdown was announced, I was a month into setting up a business, trying to get new clients, trying to fill roles. Uh, I only had a couple of roles. And then first lockdown was announced. So I was like that to my missus, look, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't, I feel like this could end up being like, we don't see each other for the year. And that might really damage the relationship. So again, this is the good side of ADHD. I didn't think it through. I packed my car the day before the lockdown was happening, packed my car, drove across the channel, drove all the way across France. The next day I was there. She's got an office because she's an architect. So she got me some space in her office and I basically set my business up from there. And that was it. So crazy. But it all worked out, didn't it? It all worked out because we got married last year. I build in my second year, I build 285 grand. And yeah, life is good. Sun shines, the snow falls, mountains are around. So yeah, I can't, I can't really complain. I mean, I guess, I guess the challenge of, of SSG, I don't know. It taught me resilience, I guess, I think, because I guess you I guess when you set up a business, one of the biggest thing that people should realize is you really find out what type of a person you are. That's mm. probably the biggest piece of information I can give anybody. You really find out what you're made of because a lot can go wrong and some stuff does. But you build up resilience, you you build up strategies, you build processes and you figure out what type of a recruiter you actually want to be and how you want to how you want the world to perceive you and the way that you do business. Yeah. It's if, been if you could go back apart from the investment side of thing, um, is there anything you would change or yeah, any, any anything you I would do differently? Anything. I wouldn't even change the investment thing. Don't, I don't I don't live with regrets it, it's all been part of my journey like going to prison like like everything else it's all been part of my journey and it's all taught me something and but I'm not saying anybody else should do that I'm saying the opposite learn from my mistakes but people may, need to make their own mistakes as well but that's a costly one in it 100 grand is a costly mistake mm. so yeah like make different mistakes than the one I made, maybe. That's good advice. Um, I suppose a good way to close this out, mate, would be just to sort of get your opinion on the future of recruitment. Well, the future of, of odd shoes, but also the future of recruitment generally. And like, where do you think everything's going? What with, you know, AI, chat GPT, everyone's talking about. Yeah. So chat GPT. I mean, I think it's going to make crap recruiters or crap recruiters who advertise, should I say, 
at least average. And that's a good thing, isn't it? If it raises mm. the bar of the bottom of the bottom part of recruitment to an average level, that's a good thing. But I'd, I'd just say to those recruiters who haven't typically got good results from adverts, utilize the technology or go on Mitch Sullivan's course and actually learn learn it and then use the two hand in hand. I don't use chat GPT for writing adverts. I don't I don't like I don't like anything false in my advert. I like it to be all written by me. And I won't ever use chat GPT in my adverts. I just won't because it's just not me. But I can see uses for it. And I can definitely see uses for recruiters who are just making that step into writing adverts. And I think in conjunction with learning about how to write adverts, it could be a really positive thing for those guys. But I give them a warning, not a warning, but like I ask, I implore them to the time that they save and the extra placements they make, which hopefully will save them time, instead of going out into the market and going, right, I need loads and loads and more clients so I can make even more money. Why don't you spend that time thinking about how you can build a better candidate journey and a bit of better client journey so you can raise recruitment up? Because do you do you recruiters really want to be seen like an estate agent in the world or like a, mm. a, a double blazing salesman or a car salesman? Do you want to be in that bracket? Because I know I don't. There's all this, this, this so, there's so many ways that these people can be raising, raising recruitment up. I'd like to see half of recruit, half of the recruitment companies get completely culled. I really would, I really would, because the owners of the business are the problem. It's not the recruiters; it's the owners. The owners of the business are the ones that drip feed this crap down. And do you think that we're on the right path, though? Like. Do you do you yeah. see a difference? Because for me, um, especially as now I'm like you know I'm in the coaching world, so you know my market is recruiters. So that's that's mm. all I do now. Um, whereas yeah. before I was obviously in amongst it, so I wasn't looking at other recruitment companies. But what I have noticed over the last few years, um, and especially more recently, is is people like yourself who have gone in over the last ten years or so, become a recruiter, and now they're all setting up their own businesses and there's there's a lot of businesses that are doing a lot of good things and they're taking all the bad stuff that we've discussed on this episode and yeah. they're, they're now like trying to solve that problem so do you think that the industry is like moving in the right direction i do yeah i do i really do i mean like i've started a small recruitment group for tech recruiters called Recruiters anonymous and um it's just seven recruiters some some are owners some are recruiters who just want to do things in a better way. And a lot of them are quite vocal. I mean, you know, one of them, Lee, me and Lee set yeah. it up together. And so there are definitely, I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged that there are recruiters who have seen the way that recruitment has been, have worked in those environments and actually want to do things differently. And I just hope that more do it. I really do. I hope and and maybe maybe a lot of these owners who did recruiting in the nineties will probably die, and then and then and then 
you know, leave space for these new recruiters to take over. Just like yeah. just like the generation of racists that we had in the eighties and the nineties are probably getting to the point where maybe they'll die and the newer, more calmer, nicer, more tolerant, more inclusive people are starting to take over. And you're seeing that shift in the world, aren't you? So every generation, like the death of the old generation is really good for the new generation. <laughs> That's a good way to end the podcast, mate, I think. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, I agree, mate. I agree. It's going to be interesting. Um, it's going to be an interesting few years and with a combination of AI as well and the shift in generations um, of, you know, business owners. I think it's, I think it's, I'm optimistic about it. I'm optimistic about the industry for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of recruitment business owners who are not so happy with what I've just said, but I don't really care. I mean, uh, well, you, you can if they feel hurt by what I've said, they're part of the problem instead of being part of the solution. And that's, that's on them. I think, do, do you think that these business owners that are clearly not doing the industry any favors and they're not, you know, providing a good experience to recruits, do you think they're aware of what they're doing? Or do you think that, because it's how they learned how to do recruitment. It's how probably they were taught with blanket KPIs and high pressure call stats yeah. and all that. Do you think they're yeah, aware? I think, or... I think there's some that are completely aware. I think there's some that are slightly aware, but it's because it's because that's what they know and that's what they've done and that's what's brought success. And mm. I think some are just like not fit to run businesses and, and don't really know how to change it. I don't yeah. know. And afraid. I think, I think you're right. Like some, some don't know how to change it, but also the, the, the issue there is they're also not willing to like try new things or even like go outside and find out what everyone else is doing. They just stick to their guns and just do what they've always it's done. Difficult. It's very difficult, isn't it? If you notice, like, I'm a one-person recruiter. All the really ethical recruiters that I know are all small businesses because mm. it's, it's easy to change when you're small. But if you look at, like, Hayes, for instance, like, Hayes, massive behemoth of a business. But how if they wanted to bring in a new piece of technology, that's not a decision that they can just make, is it? Because there's so many, there's so many people going to be affected by it, and it's yeah. the same with business owners who come up, they set up a business, and then they go, "This is the way I've always done it. This is the way I've learned." Suddenly they're at 50, 100, 150 heads, and they're like, "Shit, I can't go back now. I can't mm. go back because I've, this is what I've created. I've created a monster, so I just ride it out until somebody buys it or, or the wheels fall off." Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's it's up to new people coming into the industry to to be the change that they want to see in recruitment. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think the um, I think the next generation and well, the next generation of recruiters, but also this generation, this new generation of business owners like yourself, are, are really gonna 
positively impact the the reputation of the industry and and how everything's done um which will hopefully snowball and yeah in five ten years time the frustrating thing is is like these recruiters who are sat working for these companies they're told that this is the way to make money so they follow it because that's your boss you do what you're told when you when you're an employee to a certain degree so but they don't realize like like focus on filling as many roles as possible. Like focus on building exclusive relationships with your clients so you don't have competition. So then you do fill all your roles. Focus on every CV that you send, nearly all of them get an interview request because you've nailed the, the brief. You you can make you can make more more money by doing things the right way than than you can doing things the wrong way. I firmly believe that, mm. but people just can't see it. And you know, if I was a recruiter and I was in 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 an agency, I, I, if I'm saying this to a recruiter who's in agency and he's working for one of those companies, I'd say go find someone else who fits who fits the mold of what you're looking for, because that's what I had to do to find who I was as a recruiter. Recruitment's yeah. recruitment's not broken. You know, there's good recruiters out there and there's bad recruiters out there, and you've just got to, you've got to go and find one that lets you be a good recruiter, understands quality over quantity, doesn't hit you with KPIs all the time. Yeah, you know, the advice the I give um, trainees who who like reach out about like you know they're not enjoying their first job. Um, the advice I always give is like you know the reality is your first or even your second recruitment job probably isn't going to be very good unless you get lucky because the reality is that your that your first job is going to be one of those types of companies those bigger types of companies and um yeah more and more people don't don't like those so they uh it's just like girlfriend i don't remember (laughs) much about my first girlfriend you know everyone's got one you know, it, yeah. it, it's just a learning process. It's just part of your journey, you know. Yeah. So one of one of the contract recruiters at Evolution, a guy called Luke Campbell, he set up his own business now. And um, I've always kept in touch with him. And he was like, I was like the perm biller. He was the, re- the contract biller for the same market, for the same clients. We worked together. And he said, like, Si, honestly, it'll take you three or four companies to find the right one. But when you when it clicks, it clicks. And he was so right. Put me in the fourth recruitment company to realize what recruitment should be. Yeah, but it's worth it. I think that's the key message, right? It's it is worth the the struggle. It is such a good career and a job. And um, yeah, I always tell people like it. Trust me, it is worth it. Like even if your first couple are crap, like when you find that right job or right company, it's it's so um, it's so rewarding and it's it's such a good career. Um, so just stick yeah. with it. Simple, isn't it? If you don't agree with the way that the company you work for does things, if something doesn't feel right about the way that you're approaching the market and you, you're unhappy, then it's really simple. Like you're not going to change a business that's established. You're not going to change the mindset. They are what they are. So you just, it's like people who want to change, change people in relationships like you don't take a relationship thinking i'm going to change that person 
into a better person. People are who they are. You can make incremental changes, but it has to be natural. It has to come from them as well, not from you wanting to change. I think it's the same recruitment. Like, don't join a company and then go, oh, I could, I could change them. You're not, you're not going to change them. You just move on as quickly as you can. Hmm. And and you will find what you're looking for because there are companies out there. But don't make the same mistake again. Because that's stupidity, isn't it? Going, I've, I've joined one company like that. I'm going to join another one like that and expect something different. You, you've just got to get yeah. wiser every time. You... Yeah, it's, it's sort of anyway. like when people... Um, I saw something on LinkedIn not long ago, actually. It was about, like, you know, when you see people kicking up, kicking off because the company doesn't offer work from home or that, just any sort of benefit that they want. But someone made it, mm. I can't remember who it was, but they said, um, stop expecting your company to fit your values. And you're like, yeah. there's plenty of companies, for example, that do offer work from home. So rather than campaigning in your current role, go find a new opportunity yeah. or set up your own business. And and if if that's what you want, but your, your employer doesn't have to like bend and mold around you. Um, yeah. And to expect that you're just going to get let down. Everybody, everybody's got the right to do things the way that they want to do it, whether it's a recruitment mm. business owner or, or or not. Like, everyone's got that right. And I hate, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like, join, just join a company that fits your values and, and fits the way that you want to work. And that's it. You're not going to change anyone. <laughs>